House Republicans are heading out of town with no agreement on how to avoid a government shutdown. They failed for a second time this week to come to a resolution. Coming up on WBUR, our Republican representative talks about his efforts to avoid a shutdown at the end of the month. It's Monday, September 21st, and this is All Things Considered. Actually, happy Thursday. A closer look at one of the issues driving United Auto Workers' tough stance on negotiations with the big three automakers is the feeling that the union is owed a long overdue redressal for all the concessions workers made back in 2007. Some people taking Ozempic, a diabetes drug used off-label for weight loss, say it's caused anxiety, depression, and suicidal thoughts but the science is still up in the air. And Massachusetts launches an ambitious initiative to protect its land and water with goals set through 2050. 73 degrees now at 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Another high-stakes meeting is underway at the White House. How important is this visit, Mr. President? How important is this visit? President Biden is hosting the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the Ukrainian leader is attempting to secure billions more in U.S. assistance for Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia. National Security Council advisor Jake Sullivan says President Biden will announce a fresh round of assistance for Ukraine that includes significant air defense capabilities. These capabilities will help Ukraine harden its defenses ahead of what is likely to be a tough winter filled with renewed Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure to try to deprive innocent people of necessities like heat and electricity. During private talks with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, Zelensky said that without additional aid, his country will lose the war. Zelensky's trip to Washington came just hours after Russia launched massive airstrikes against Ukraine. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Cleanup and recovery is underway in Ukraine following another deadly Russian attack. Overnight, Russia struck the capital, Kiev, and other cities. At least five lives were lost and dozens more people in Ukraine were injured. Media mogul Rupert Murdoch announced today that he plans to step down from his roles leading his publishing and television empires after a career spanning seven decades. NPR's David Folkenflik reports Murdoch leaves a legacy of extraordinary business success, political influence, and scandal. Murdoch made his money on tabloid newspapers and kept expanding, buying prestige papers like the Times of London and the Wall Street Journal. He built a fourth television network and founded Fox News. Murdoch is now 92. He's had health scares in recent years and he's departing after yet another season of crisis. Earlier this year, Murdoch testified he allowed Fox stars to embrace then-President Donald Trump's baseless claims of election fraud in 2020 in order to curry favor with viewers. That surfaced in a defamation case from an election tech company. Fox Corp paid more than three-quarters of a billion dollars to settle it. Murdoch says he'll continue to be engaged in news and the contest of ideas. David Folkenflik, NPR News. Hollywood studios and screenwriters resume negotiations for a second day, adding to hope that after nearly five months, the writer's strike could soon be over. Top entertainment executives uh, were at last night's discussions. Since May, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike for higher pay and residuals, as well as stronger job protections against the industry's increasing reliance on artificial intelligence. Members of SAG-AFTRA are also fighting for similar protections, and they went on strike in July. From Washington, this 
is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 200,000 people have been removed from the Mass Health Program since April. The state is going through the rolls to determine who's eligible for state health benefits and who no longer qualifies because they earn too much money. Assistant Secretary for Mass Health Mike Levine said today the number of people leaving the program will increase in the coming months. We are seeing what we expected, which is an increasing number of closures and a reduction in our caseload beginning to pick up. The state says about half the people who lost coverage failed to provide enough information to prove they were eligible. MassHealth still provides health coverage for more than 2.3 million people in the state. Newly unionized fellows and medical residents at Mass General Brigham have filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board against the health system. The Harvard Crimson reports Mass General Brigham cut a $10,000 stipend for such expenses as license and board certification fees. WBR has asked Mass General Brigham for comment. The Healy administration says it's grateful to the White House for granting temporary protected status to Venezuelans in the U.S. The government's office says that the move will have limited impact in Massachusetts, though, as the state deals with the influx of migrants. Governor Maura Healey wants extended protections for Haitian families who represent a large percentage of the state's emergency shelter system. Healy is also asking for more federal funding for expedited work permits for migrants. And the city of Somerville is partnering with the MBTA on a program to provide free bus and subway passes to city employees. Nearly 2,000 municipal workers, including teachers, will have unlimited access to free public transportation. The program launches later this month. It's expected to run for a full year. Sunny and pretty nice today. Clear and chilly overnight tonight. Could dip to nearly 50 degrees. Tomorrow, one more day of sunshine before things turn gray and damp for the weekend. 73 degrees, a beautiful afternoon in Boston now. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. By this point, it's well known that the diabetes drug Ozempic can induce pretty dramatic weight loss in some users. But that might not be its only side effect. Some people say it's causing significant mental health problems, from anxiety and depression to suicidal thoughts. NPR's Sydney Lupkin has been looking into it and will join us in a few minutes. First, though, we are nine days away from what is looking more and more likely to be a government shutdown. Over the coming days, we will be reporting on the real consequences if a shutdown does come to pass, from veterans who don't receive their benefits to federal employees who get furloughed to your flight getting canceled if the FAA and TSA are not at full strength. The chief obstacle to moving spending bills forward is not Partisan bickering, not this time, but infighting among Republicans, specifically among Republicans in the House. They control that chamber, but cannot reach agreement on how best to cut spending. But one moderate Republican is calling this seemingly intractable situation, quote, a clown show. That Republican is Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman Lawler, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. A clown show. Explain what you mean. Well, listen, the American people 
elected a House Republican majority to serve as a check and balance on the Biden administration and to rein in uh, reckless spending and to right-size our government. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to work cohesively within the House uh, caucus to do it. And unfortunately, we have some folks who are uh, refusing to cooperate in a serious and meaningful way to find compromise within the caucus. You need 218 votes. And some of these people are just stuck on this mindset that it's their way or the highway, uh, and that if they don't get what they want, they're going to stomp their feet and you know throw a temper tantrum uh, until they do. So the clowns in this analogy are the far-right members of your party? It's not even whether they're far-right or, or not. I mean, it, it's a handful of people who, throughout the course of the year, have proven themselves time and again to operate like this. Uh, and it's just totally inappropriate when you're within a conference. Uh, you know, these are the same people who voted against Kevin McCarthy, despite the majority of the conference uh, supporting him. These are the same people that have continually voted down rules, uh, despite, you know, a rule not failing in, you know, nearly 20 years. They don't care. And so, as far as I'm concerned, when, when that's the situation, uh, they basically leave people that are reasonable with very little choice uh, but to uh, find ways to, to work uh, across the aisle. When speaking of accomplishing things or not accomplishing things, we are seeing news that the House uh, is giving up on negotiations and about to dismiss and go home until Tuesday. Is that right? <clears throat> that seems to be the, the report. But, you know, look, I don't think we should be going home at this point. Uh, we have a lot of work to do between now and September 30th. Uh, I think, you know, frankly, these folks who, uh, once again, after agreeing to, to move an appropriations bill, uh, stalled it once more, you know, they, they should be here uh, working like everyone else. And uh, so, you know, my feeling is that we should stay and we should, we should work on these issues. The context here is, of course, that Speaker McCarthy enjoys only a four-vote margin in the House. Your colleagues are threatening, if they don't get their way, to put a, a process in motion to oust him. How much, Congressman, how much of what we're watching in Congress this week is Speaker McCarthy looking out for his own political future? I don't think that's a fair assessment at all. I mean, the Speaker has been working tirelessly uh, to get the members to work as a conference. Uh, he's but one voice. And, you know, unlike Nancy Pelosi, who controlled everything with an iron grip, uh, he has allowed the rank and file members to play a role uh, in crafting legislation and in the process. And so, you know, obviously it's messy at times. This is messier than I think anybody would want, including the speaker. Um, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that he's putting his own uh, interests ahead of, of the conference, not, it, not in the least. Is any of this raising questions in your mind? about your party's ability to govern? No, you're talking about a handful of people who right now are, uh, you know, trying to exert uh, pressure on the conference to get what they view as, uh, you know, what the spending cuts should be and what the numbers should be. Uh, but I think as a conference, uh, we have been able to advance a lot of legislation uh, in the first nine months. We have Although been able Although just today, uh, y'all to failed continue. to advance the defense spending bill. That was something in the previous shutdown under the Trump administration, Congress at least got that done, not this time. Well, we're, we still have nine days left. Obviously, 
we w would like to see that bill debated and moved, uh, and we'll continue to push for that. But this, this Congress uh, has been serving as a check and balance on the Biden agenda. It's been able to stop a lot of the reckless uh, spending. Obviously, the spending levels that this administration would like to continue at are not going to happen. And so that's you know a big part of what this debate and discussion is about. Uh, but ultimately, we're going to have to find compromise, both within the conference and certainly uh, working with the Senate and the White House to get to final appropriations bills. That's the objective, and that's what I and most of my colleagues uh, will continue to work towards. A last question, and you can answer it in a word. How likely do you believe a shutdown is after September 30th, scale of 1 to 10? Well, I, I'm not going to put a likelihood on it. I am going to do everything I can to avoid that. Uh, and I think most of my colleagues uh, would like to avoid that. So we're going to keep working over the next nine days to make sure that that doesn't happen. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman, thank you. Thanks. Ozempic, the injectable drug for type 2 diabetes, has taken the world by storm. Despite not being approved by the Food and Drug Administration for weight loss, Ozempic has prompted people on TikTok and Instagram to speculate about which stars have used it to shed pounds seemingly overnight. But some people taking the popular drug worry it might have another side effect on mental health. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin reports. Nearly three months into taking Ozempic for diabetes, Jenny Kent had already lost 12 pounds, and her blood sugar numbers were looking better than they had in a while. But something was off. I was just constantly in a state of being overwhelmed. So my response to that was just, I was just crying all the time sobbing, crying. She's one of many people taking Ozempic and related drugs to describe mental health problems. But that possible side effect isn't mentioned in Ozempic's instructions for use or drug label. So are the problems a coincidence or related to the drug? In July, the European Medicines Agency announced that it was looking into the risk of thoughts of self-harm and suicide with the use of Ozempic and similar drugs. The FDA hasn't taken that step. An agency spokesperson told NPR it is monitoring the situation. Adding, we continue to conclude that the benefits of these medications outweigh the risks when they are used according to FDA-approved labeling. Once a drug like Ozempic is on the market, it's difficult to conduct studies that would answer the question. Here's Rishi Desai of Harvard Medical School, who studies drug side effects. It may take some time, even years, to study this uh, and, and see anything with certainty. NPR analyzed the FDA's public database for capturing new side effects. It's called FAIRS. The agency has received 489 reports of patients experiencing anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts while taking semaglutide drugs, which include Ozempic. In 96 of those reports, the patient had suicidal thoughts, and five of them died. Still, it's too early to know whether Ozempic and the other drugs caused the mental health problems because of the nature of the database. Here's Desai from Harvard again. So FAIRS is a passive surveillance system where ordinary people like you and me, patients, caregivers, medical providers can report a safety event if they feel that their patient has suffered uh, an adverse outcome from a drug that they had been on. The database is voluntary, unverified by the agency, and may have duplicates. It also has no denominator or comparison group to tease out whether an adverse event, like depression or suicidal thoughts, is the result of the drug or something else. Here's Dr. Jonathan Alpert, who chairs the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Montefiore Medical Center. I always think it makes sense to take 
side effects like that seriously, particularly in drugs that are relatively new and that we're still learning about. People experiencing potential side effects should consult their doctors. A Novo Nordisk spokesperson says the company takes all reports about new side effects very seriously and is monitoring additional data. Novo Nordisk remains confident in the benefit-risk profile of the products and remains committed to ensuring patient safety, the spokesperson said in an email, adding that this class of drugs has been used for more than 15 years. As for Jenny Kent, who was a few months into taking Ozempic, her worsening mental health problems really started to affect her life. I was starting to feel like I was just this negative burden for everybody, and I didn't want to do that. Then she got a text from her younger sister, Jackie, after a belated Father's Day gathering in July. It said, are you okay? At first, Kent said she was fine, but after some prodding, she caved. I started talking to her about it. And she is the one who said, the only thing that's changed for you is Ozempic. She's like, are you sure it's not that? And I said, there's no way it could be that. At the end of July, Jenny went back to her doctor, and they decided she should stop taking Ozempic. It's only been a few months, but Jenny thinks her mental health is improving. She wanted to talk publicly about her experience so other people who find themselves in the same boat don't blame themselves as she initially did. NPR caught up with Jenny's sister, Jackie. She's laughing. I had I realized I hadn't heard her like genuinely laugh in a while. She says the difference in her sister when she stopped taking Ozempic was night and day. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the film Dumb Money tells the story of how GameStop went from the brink of bankruptcy to its emergence as a meme stock. But the story of how the movie got made is a drama of its own. That story and much more is still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice. Advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach, committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. Stocks tumbled today. The Dow fell nearly one and a tenth of a percent. S&P lost one and six tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq fell more than one and eight tenths of a percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Housing advocates say there's a desperate need for more affordable housing in Massachusetts. A WBUR investigation finds many existing subsidized apartments are being used for something else entirely. Our story starts on the North Shore. You can hear it in the next hour here at 90.9 WBUR. Pretty darned wonderful out there right now. Sunshine, a light breeze, another clear night ahead tonight, but turning chillier, falling to the low 50s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine once again, but highs only about 69 degrees. 73 now in Boston at 420.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he carries around a list of wrongfully detained Americans. That list got a bit shorter this week when five Americans were released from Iran. But Blinken says there is still work to do, and he's trying to come up with ways to deter countries from taking Americans to use as political pawns. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Washington Post journalist Jason Brezion was freed in a prisoner swap with Iran in 2016, but he says even after he came home, he received death threats because of a propaganda television series about him in Iran. And the Iranian producer of that program is here in New York as part of Iran's delegation to the UN General Assembly. Why is that person allowed to walk freely uh, in New York City as a member of a diplomatic delegation? He's not a diplomat. He is uh, an aider and a better of a hostage-taking state. Resian says if the U.S. and other countries really want to deter this practice of arbitrary detentions, it should punish those involved. And there should be consequences for people like them. We're speaking at Canada's mission to the United Nations. Canada took a lead in this effort after two of its citizens were held by China to pressure Canada to drop a case against Huawei's chief financial officer. Michael Kodvig, who spent a thousand days in Chinese custody, says countries need to sharpen the tools of deterrence. Currently, the costs of arbitrary detention are asymmetric. Low for perpetrators, high for targeted states and astronomical for victims. To invert that equation, we must deny opportunities and punish violations. Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, says that's exactly what they're trying to do. More than 70 countries have signed on to a joint statement condemning arbitrary detentions. The next step is to show that they can work together, rather than one by one, to pressure and punish countries that take people as pawns. Secretary Blinken calls the practice callous and inhumane. The U.S. says it's working on 30 to 40 cases now, including two Americans currently held in Russia. Sometimes I look across the table at a counterpart whose country is engaged in this and really ask myself how, um, how they sleep at night. Blinken has faced criticism for the deal with Iran. The U.S. gave clemency to five Iranians and helped Iran get access to $6 billion of its oil revenue that had been frozen in recent years. But Jason Rezaian says getting Americans home does require concessions and negotiations. He'd just like to see a more concerted effort to prevent these situations in the first place. We have a growing body of evidence of a serialized crime that's being perpetrated again and again by mafia states. He means Russia, Iran, China, Venezuela, and North Korea. But Rezaian says some U.S. friends are involved in this too, and he'd like to see them sign on to this statement, reestablishing international norms. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey today issued an executive order that calls for more strategic conservation of Massachusetts land and waters. The goal of the order is to promote biodiversity. It directs the state's Fish and Game Department to set new conservation targets for state agencies to implement by the years 2030, 2040, and 2050. The governor said the move is necessary to protect critically important habitats and help lessen the effects of climate change. Andy Finton is a conservation ecologist with the Nature Conservancy of Massachusetts. He applauds the move, and he walked us through the basics of biodiversity. So biodiversity at its simplest is the variety of life and the abundance of life in any given place. I think the word can be somewhat cold, so I think of it as like a story. So right now we're heading into fall and our forests, whether it's Mount Greylock in western Massachusetts or the North Shore or even the Cape, our trees are about to turn color. And we think of, oh, there's a forest, but we're going to start to see yellow birches and red maples and rusty orange oaks. And that's the first step towards thinking about how diverse is that place. If we walk into that forest, we're going to see a log that fell over a few years ago and is starting to rot with mushrooms on it. And you can keep going deeper and deeper and think about rolling that log over and finding a salamander or a beetle. It's that variety of life in any given place. And where is that not happening? Or where is that environment in danger? So we're, we're losing biodiversity in Massachusetts, across the country, and globally. And these are from threats like climate change, from habitat loss, from habitat fragmentation. All of these things add up and begin to erode the resilience of ecosystems like forests, wetlands, salt marshes. Give us an idea of where it's happening. Okay. The salt marshes on the coast of Massachusetts, they've experienced a number of insults over literally decades and centuries. So the North Shore, the Great Marsh on the North Shore of Massachusetts is, is a great example. A huge, highly functioning salt marsh. But we're, we're losing species and we're losing the ability of those systems. Same with on Cape Cod, where we've got a lot of fertilizer on lawns, a lot of septic tanks that don't function well. That nutrient pollution is draining into those salt marshes and eroding their ability to stay biodiverse. So that sounds like it's really not a good thing at all. What's the practical effect? We're critically dependent on the ecosystems around us, the wetlands, the forests, the salt marshes, the ocean. They give us our clean drinking water. They give us the clean air we're breathing, the oxygen, literally the oxygen that we're breathing every moment. They're mitigating climate change by pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And once these ecosystems begin to degrade, they are no longer able to do that for us. So coastal salt marshes are a great example because when we're experiencing a hurricane, like we've just seen one glance off the coast, we get higher sea levels, we get a storm surge, and those salt marshes absorb that energy, absorb those coastal uh, storm surges. So without the salt marshes? Without the salt marshes, we get direct impacts from storm surge on our roads, our homes, our health and safety. With Governor Maura Healy's announcement, I mean, you, you are extremely happy about it. She said, and this is pretty scary, she said more than 400 species in Massachusetts are endangered. If the state has spent, as the governor also says, decades protecting natural resources, why are we at a crisis point right now? And how bad is it that 400 species are endangered? It sounds bad, but it's we've had a lot of success. We are a leader in conservation in Massachusetts. But we're at a crisis point. We're at a crisis point. I think if we hadn't put the efforts we've put in for the last several decades, we'd be in a much worse situation. 
we're at a crisis point globally. About a million species are considered at risk for extinction across the globe. We've lost three billion birds in North America in the last 50 years. Three billion. Three billion with a B. That's 30% of the biomass, the number of birds across North America. So yes, we're seeing gloom and doom, but the exciting thing is we've brought a lot of species back from the edge. We know how to do it, and we're continuing to do it. So what are the top instruments the executive order uses to accomplish more biodiversity protection? The executive order is going to focus the energies and actions of all state agencies. This is a first in the country, first ever directive to coalesce around a single goal of biodiversity by all agencies. So every action will lead to a net positive for our plants and animals, the ecosystems that we depend on. The pieces of the toolkit that will be implemented by these agencies include land protection. We'll also focus on restoration and management of sensitive habitats. Andy Fenton, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Andy Fenton is a conservation ecologist with the Nature Conservancy in Massachusetts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, now through October 8th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Endless Energy, a certified AeroSeal installer, designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com. Coming up in 25 minutes, how a guitar player in California uses his music to connect with his mother who suffers from Alzheimer's. Want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and get first crack at tickets? Sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org newsletters. Bright skies today, clear tonight, cold down around 50. Then sunshine returns for tomorrow. High temperatures in the upper 60s. Members of the band The Talking Heads had another look at their famous concert film from the 80s. And I'm kind of looking at it and thinking, who is that guy? The band broke up amid much bad feeling, but all four members met us in the same room to talk of the re-release of Stop Making Sense on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Striking United Auto Workers remain on the picket lines this afternoon, demanding significant progress at the bargaining table by tomorrow. Otherwise, the UAW will widen its strike against the big three U.S. automakers. Right now, only three automotive uh, plants are facing strikes. UAW member Yolanda Downs was at a rally this afternoon in Auburn Hills, Michigan. She's calling for an end to a tiered system of wages for new workers. I want the levels to be balanced. I want everyone to make a good um, living and a fair living. If I'm working on one side of the line and I'm making $30 and the person across from me is making $15 an hour, how is that fair? Meanwhile, fallout from the strikes has caused automakers to start idling thousands of other union members because they aren't getting the supply of auto parts they need to work. Donald Trump plans to travel to Detroit next week to counter criticism by union leaders that a second term for him would be a disaster for workers. TikTok is facing discrimination claims by two black employees. They say that after they filed complaints with HR, they were fired. NPR's Derek Kerr has more on the story. 
The two TikTok employees didn't know each other and worked in different offices, but they had similar experiences. Both say they were given worse jobs than their white counterparts and were excluded from meetings and talked down to by managers. One of the workers, Nete Matima, says she was called a racial epithet behind her back. It's like you against the world in these situations and you're mocked and you're being ridiculed. It brings you to a very dark place. When the workers complained to human resources, they say they faced retaliation and were fired. Now they have filed a class action discrimination case against TikTok with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. TikTok didn't respond to a request for comment. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman and House Minority Whip Catherine Clark is urging Speaker Kevin McCarthy to pass a bipartisan spending plan in order to avoid a government shutdown. McCarthy originally agreed to that deal, but Republicans who are demanding deeper cuts threatened to oust him as Speaker. Clark told CNN today that McCarthy needs to stick with the bipartisan deal. We have a bipartisan agreement, and what flows from that is going to be good for the American people, good for the economy, and ultimately good for Kevin McCarthy. But what we're seeing is a leader who refuses to lead, who is only concerned with his own power. Lawmakers have a September 30th deadline in order to avoid a government shutdown. Boston is launching a program to reduce the use of fossil fuels in multifamily homes. Landlords can get financing to retrofit their buildings with energy-efficient technology. The city estimates 80% of all Boston buildings require major renovations to become more energy-efficient. Today, authorities identified the Methuen father who died trying to save his child from drowning at Salisbury Beach. The Essex County DA's office says 44-year-old Gary Samara drowned yesterday when he and two bystanders tried to get his child out of the rough surf caused by a riptide. The bystanders were able to rescue the child. Three MIT researchers are the recipients of the year's prestigious Lasker Award for Medicine. The scientists developed technology to help doctors better diagnose eye diseases. The award's announcement described the imaging technology as revolutionary for ophthalmology. The forecast is on the way. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener U, a climate action construction firm that helps to cut building emissions throughout New England. Learn more at greeneru.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Our glorious day turns to a fine, dry night tonight, about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine for one more day. Then sun takes most of the weekend off, leaving us with both showers on Saturday and Sunday. Highs around the mid-60s for the weekend. 73 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Thursday, it's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Money. 
power, greed, frenzy. It is all there in the financial drama around the video game retailer GameStop. From its descent into near bankruptcy, to its rescue by beloved fans, and then to its emergence as what we now call a meme stock. So now, Hollywood's take less than three years after peak GameStop, it's also a movie called Dumb Money. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi from our Planet Money podcast says that the actual story of how the movie got made gives the movie Dumb Money a run, well, for its money. When Hollywood producer Aaron Ryder first heard about the GameStop fiasco back in January of 2021, he thought to himself, this would make for a great movie. But You know, Hollywood, we're a bunch of heat-seeking missiles. You know, you hear something that could be a cool idea for a movie, you're going to have several people chasing it. And I knew that the only way that this could be successful would be to be first. Did it feel like you were kind of entering into a race? Absolutely. Because plenty of people might be interested in buying a ticket to relive the GameStop saga on the big screen. But how many are going to go for version number two or three? Luckily, Aaron was in a good starting position. He had a deal producing movies for a major Hollywood studio, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM. But he'd still need a director, some fancy movie stars, and a workable script as quickly as possible. Which meant... The thing that I'm going to need is a piece of intellectual property. Something that tells the GameStop story cinematically. Some article or book or even a podcast that he can buy the rights to adapt. So he starts poring over the New York Times, the Washington Post, until a few days into his search. An agent friend of mine gave me a tip that there was a book proposal floating around. And this wasn't just any book proposal. It was by a writer named Ben Mesrick, who's built his whole career around Hollywood's hunger for IP. My dream was never, you know, win a Pulitzer or win a National Book Award. My dream was always having a tie-in paperback that said, now a major motion picture. Ben has had a couple books turned into movies. His book about card-counting blackjack players became the movie 21. Then Aaron Sorkin helped adapt one of his books into the movie The Social Network. Ben says one big advantage he's got when it comes to selling IP to Hollywood is that he does not identify as a journalist. He'll often make up dialogue or combine characters to make the most cinematic version of the story. So it's not like I'm writing trash. I'm trying to write Shakespearean dramatic themes, but it's young people in exciting locales with lots of money and sex, (laughs) right? As opposed to what a journalist is doing, which is they're trying to give you the facts. Once Ben sees the GameStop fiasco in early 2021, he spends a single day doing research and writing up a book proposal. His agent then floats it to producers around Hollywood, and by the end of the week, his proposal is at the center of a bidding war between a couple studios. The numbers just start getting crazy. Do you mind ballparking them? (laughs) What what are we talking? It it goes beyond a million dollars, let's put it that way. And MGM, I think it was like at midnight, called with a take-it-or-leave-it offer that was something like a half a million dollars higher than the other offer. Producer Aaron Ryder and MGM win the rights to make Ben's book into a movie. And almost immediately, they make an announcement, hoping to use their early lead to scare away their rivals at other Hollywood studios. We're planting a flag. We have this piece of IP. It's formidable. We're making this movie. 
But within a few days, a bunch of other Hollywood heavies announced their own movies. Netflix is reportedly in talks to work with the guy who wrote and produced The Hurt Locker. HBO announces they're teaming up with mega producer Jason Blum, whose company Blumhouse made Get Out. And several others follow suit. The race is on. And our next step was trying to find the right writer. Which is to say the right screenwriter. And near the top of Aaron's list was a screenwriting duo of former Wall Street Journal reporters named Lauren Shuker Blum and Rebecca Angelo. So Aaron gets them on a call. He's like, I really want to hire you, but we have to wait for Aaron Sorkin to say yes or no. Lauren, it's so, it's so naughty that you're telling all these details. Um, yes, Lauren and I are often second in line after Sorkin, the considerably less expensive and female alternatives to him, which is a very happy place we for us to take be. take Aaron Sorkin's trash. Yeah. <laughs> his leftovers, his yeah, discards. We make so. gold out of it. Lucky for them, Aaron Sorkin turns out to be busy on another project. So we got the job, and there were, I think, nine other GameStop projects in Hollywood. So it became clear that our mission was to be the fastest. Lauren and Rebecca were able to speak with us because they were also brought onto the film as executive producers. They say they support the ongoing Writers Guild strike in Hollywood. Soon after they sign on, author Ben Mesrick delivers his book, and Lorne and Rebecca get to work writing a script without worrying too much about their competitors. But there is one project that's kind of hard to ignore. My husband went off with the succession writers, I think. Jason Blum, the big-time producer who was working on a competing GameStop project for HBO, turns out Jason is actually Lauren Shuker Blum's husband. At some point, I was so infuriated, we had to just stop talking about it. So we had like a moratorium of like, I wouldn't even talk about our movie if he was anywhere in the it was house. very secretive. Yeah. Right? Like we, it was like right. you couldn't, dinner tables were just silent. Producer Aaron Ryder says he wasn't too concerned about domestic espionage within the Blumhouse. And that thanks to Lauren and Rebecca's laser focus, around six months after they start writing, they're ready to find a director. For that, Aaron hires Craig Gillespie, who made I, Tanya about ice skater Tanya Harding. And Craig came to the project with several movie stars who wanted to work with him. Producer Aaron Ryder is thrilled. It felt like the stars were aligning, you know? Things were coming together so fast. But then things got complicated. And we start with the deal of the morning. That's Amazon buying MGM for just under $8.5 billion. This In the spring of 2022, Aaron and his fellow producers find out they weren't the only ones scrambling over intellectual property. Way, way up the chain at Amazon, which, by the way, supports and pays to distribute some NPR content, Jeff Bezos was making his own IP play, buying out the MGM vault and making some changes. A few weeks later, Aaron Ryder gets a call from his new bosses and finds out his new GameStop movie is dead in the water. Most would maybe consider that terrible news. I just consider it like, okay, that's not working. Let's move over to the next. Let's pivot. Undeterred, Aaron works out a deal to buy back the rights to the film with funding from an independent production company. And pretty soon, the project actually starts filming with a cast including Paul Dano, Pete Davidson, and Seth Rogen. During production, Aaron and his crew hear whispers that some of their competitors may be dropping out of the race. And finally, about a year after they start shooting... It seems safe to say that Dumb Money is going to be the first GameStop feature film to hit movie screens at this point. Uh, if it's not, if something else pops itself up between now and next week, that's it, I'm done. I, I give up. <laughs> Last Friday night, I got a ticket to my local theater, not too far from Wall Street. I settled into my seat, the lights dimmed... 
And the first thing that popped onto the screen? A single sentence against the black background, based on a true story. Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, NPR News and the Planet Money Podcast. And Alexi has the full story behind the movie and the meme stock on this week's Planet Money Podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We are now less than 24 hours away from a new deadline in the United Auto Workers strike against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. At noon tomorrow, the UAW could expand the walkout to more locations unless the big three automakers make progress in meeting the union's demands. I'm joined now by NPR's Danielle Kay. Hey there, welcome back. Hi, Mary Louise. So just get us up to speed. Where do things stand with this strike right now? So as of now, roughly 13,000 workers at three auto plants have walked off the job. But the union is warning that more of its 150,000 members could join the strike at noon tomorrow if they don't make substantial progress with the companies by then. It's part of the so-called stand-up strike strategy that's meant to keep the companies on their toes. And we're already seeing ripple effects. All three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, have laid off workers at plants that aren't on strike because those plants need components that are made in plants that are on strike. So far, the UAW has rejected all three companies' proposals, but we should know more tomorrow morning. And one of the key issues, if not the biggest demand that unions are at, that the union is asking for is a is a significant pay raise, 40 percent. Mm-hmm. OK. Right. The UA- yeah, the UAW is pushing for a 40% pay raise over the length of the four-year contract, and um, that is pretty substantial. It's compared to single-digit raises in the last contract. The companies have gone up from their opening bids, but nowhere near what the union wants so far. The UAW is making a few important points here. First, the automakers have done really well in the past few years. They made $21 billion in profit collectively in just the first half of 2023. And on top of that, sky-high CEO pay is on everyone's mind. Last year, General Motors CEO Mary Barra made 362 times more than the company's median employee. Here's Gil Ramsey, a Ford employee who's on strike in Wayne, Michigan. For as much money as our uh, CEO makes in a couple days, we don't even make that in a year, so they owe us. You know, we haven't had a raise in years, a real raise, and everything that we gave up when the company was down on the ropes, we haven't even got that back yet. So, so Ramsey is talking about the concessions auto workers made during the 2007-2008 financial crisis uh, and, the, and during the recession that followed. The mm. automakers were brought to their knees, and at that time, the UAW agreed to a freeze in base wages for workers and accepted all kinds of concessions. So auto workers' wages adjusted for inflation have been falling for years now, and, and now UAW leadership says it's time for that to change. Okay, so higher wages, a big, much higher wages they're calling for. What are some of the other key demands? Well, auto workers also gave up cost of living adjustments during the recession. Uh, so now the UAW wants those protections to be put back in place to make sure wages actually keep up with inflation over the next few years. All three automakers have proposed some sort of cost of living adjustment, but the union has said the offers so far don't meaningfully protect against inflation. 
On top of that, the UAW is trying to get rid of what it sees as a two-tier system for wages and benefits. This also dates back to the concessions during the financial crisis. People hired after 2007 have gotten lower wages and fewer benefits than veteran employees. Mm -hmm. Newer hires can eventually work their way up to the top pay rate, but only after eight years. So all of these issues really matter to workers, and the union has a lot of momentum and public support right now. And PR's Daniel Kay, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to it on 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, why Fox founder Rupert Murdoch is stepping down from the global media empire he built over seven decades. That story's still ahead. Red Sox take the night off as they prepare for the final homestand of the regular season. It'll be a three-game series with the White Sox starting tomorrow. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. Forecast sunny skies, low humidity, and all-around greatness today. But things should turn pretty chilly tonight. Temperatures falling to about 50 degrees. Sunshine graces us tomorrow for one more day. It may not even hit 70 degrees tomorrow. Then for the weekend, a change in the weather. Clouds roll in. Rain comes down. Could have showers both Saturday and Sunday with high temperatures in the mid-60s tops. Still 73 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include the Boston Book Festival, happening in Copley Square October 14th. Fun for all ages, and it's free. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Welsh and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. Welshforbes.com. The Biden administration is working hard on what could be an historic Israel-Saudi Arabia peace deal. You really only can normalize relations once, right? So this is a card that you can play once, and once it's played, that's it. We'll look at what's at stake for Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the United States. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Last night, the Biden administration announced it will be extending temporary protected status, or TPS, to over 400,000 Venezuelan migrants already in the United States. That status keeps people from being deported and is often applied to those from countries where armed conflict or natural disasters prevent them from returning home safely. NPR's Jasmine Garst has been reporting on this, and she joins us now. And Jasmine, we just mentioned that this is an extension, so help us understand why this is so significant. It's a really big deal. Um, There already were around 240,000 Venezuelans covered by TPS before this. This is going to add over 400,000 more. Now, one of the reasons it's such a big deal is that TPS opens up the ability for those people to work legally in the U.S. So a lot of the people who've been arriving to the U.S. seeking asylum are from Venezuela. Almost everyone I've spoken to says they are fleeing armed violence and government persecution, and they fear for their lives should they be sent back. 
Now, here's the thing. When you are an asylum seeker, you have to wait for months. I mean, sometimes even over a year to get a legal work permit. And so what cities like New York and Chicago have been saying is that's going to cost us a lot, sheltering people who can't work for the foreseeable future. And I should say it's also business owners who have been saying, listen, there's a labor shortage in the U.S. We need workers. Let these folks work. So Back to your question, if you get temporary protected status or TPS, you can apply for that work permit right away. Okay, but Jasmine, this is temporary though, right? Absolutely. In this case, Venezuela has gotten TPS designation for 18 months, after which that country's conditions are going to be reevaluated. It is a sort of limbo, but the argument here is it's a limbo where people are protected from deportation and can work legally. They don't have to go into the underground economy, meaning working undocumented without labor protections. And of course, a more permanent fix would have to come from Congress. But as we know, Congress has been too divided to do any sort of comprehensive immigration reform. Right. So before we end, I do want to ask you about the politics. Is this expansion of TPS getting any sort of political pushback? Yes. Uh, One of the arguments that has been made against this is if you give people who come here TPS, you give them the right to work, protect them from deportation, well, then you're encouraging more people to come to the U.S. without documentation. I should mention this TPS extension only applies to Venezuelans who arrived in the U.S. on or before July 31st. Um, But nevertheless, Republicans say a message is being sent. If you come here, we will accommodate you. Um, On Wednesday, Texas Governor Greg Abbott also posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, this, quote, I officially declared an invasion at our border. NPR's Jasmine Garst, thank you. Thank you. Today is World Alzheimer's Day. Every 67 seconds, someone in America is diagnosed with this form of dementia. As researchers have tried to better understand the disease, they have found that musical memory can stay with patients long after other memories have faded away. NPR's Dustin Jones brings us a story about a mother and son who have been able to connect through music even after she's lived with the disease for 18 years. In 2005, Adam Kay was hosting a family barbecue at his home in Del Mar, California, when his mother, Marty Kay, first broke the news. At 71, she was becoming forgetful. Marty would be working in the kitchen and suddenly forget what she was doing. She had a hard time remembering names and started calling everyone darling to avoid the problem. And it was very uncommon for me to see my mother cry, but she said, I have Alzheimer's disease. And she said that as she was choking back tears. Making the most of what time Marty had left, Adam and his family rallied around Marty every Sunday. But when her husband Peter died of cancer in 2015, Marty had to move in with professional caregivers. Determined to support his mother, Adam continued to see Marty every Sunday. And instead of barbecuing for her, he would break out his guitar. (laughs) As a lifelong musician, Adam has always enjoyed playing guitar for Marty. She often joined in, singing along with her son at family gatherings. And even though Alzheimer's has taken away Marty's ability to sing, she can still recall the music. She whistles along as Adam plays some of her favorites from the Great American Songbook, songs like And I Love Her by John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and Django by jazz legend John Lewis. (laughs) 
Adam says Alzheimer's has crushed Marty's memory, but the music remains. At this stage, she cannot form a word, but somehow the pathway to musical melodies remains clear. And it is along this pathway that she and I are able to communicate. In the beginning, it is very sad for the patient because they realize that they don't have the same memory that they had before. That's Dr. Carmela Abraham, a professor at Boston University School of Medicine, where she has studied Alzheimer's for more than 30 years. She calls the disease heartbreaking. But after a while, they don't suffer anymore. They have no pain and they just don't know what's going on. They don't recognize their family members, their loved ones. So they really don't suffer. They can live like this 10 to 15 years. And the suffering, which is both emotional and financial, is on the family. As the disease progresses, people struggle with short-term memory loss, then the long-term memories, and eventually they lose the ability to talk. But the parts of the brain affected by music are some of the very last to go, which is why Marty can still whistle and hum along when Adam plays for her. Go again. Marty is 89 now. She spends almost all of her time in her wheelchair or in bed. She needs help from her caretakers to perform the activities of daily living, like getting dressed and using the bathroom. Marty has a blank stare on her face most of the time, seemingly adrift after 18 years of Alzheimer's disease. But her face lights up every time Adam looks at her and plays. It makes him smile too. Uh Very good. (laughs) It gives me a lift every time. I love my mom so much. I I miss her. I miss her great, loving, caring heart. I miss miss her ability to think, and I miss her ability to remember, and I miss how sweet and unconditionally loving she always was for me, especially during times when (laughs) I might not have deserved it. So it means everything for me to be able to bring her a little bit of joy with my guitar and and my visits and playing along together. (laughs) Dustin Jones, NPR News. Great. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of The Six by Lauren Grush, telling the story of America's first women astronauts, six women each making history going to orbit aboard NASA's space shuttle, available in bookstores and online. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. 
This station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks so much for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Our glorious day turns into a fine, dry night tonight, down to about 50 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine for a final day. And then the sun takes most of the weekend off, leaving us with showers Saturday and Sunday. High temperatures around the mid-60s. It's 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more, Friday, September 30th, cambridgesciencefestival.org. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mortgage rates above 7% are weighing on the housing market, but some builders and buyers are finding workarounds. In some cases, that means choosing a little less space. An update on the national housing landscape coming up on this Thursday, the 21st of September. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Massachusetts is in the midst of an affordable housing crisis. Coming up, our investigation finds that while some families linger in emergency shelters, some communities are using vacant subsidized units for office space instead of housing. We've had families in shelter for more than a year. That seems like a bigger priority than a break room or a storage facility. Also, Ukraine's president visits Washington, and archaeologists have found evidence that Stone Age humans were building with wood nearly a half million years ago. It's 5.01. PR News in New York, I'm Jack Spear. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have welcomed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his wife Olena Zelenska to the White House today, part of a whirlwind trip to Washington. It also included meetings with congressional leaders. Biden again praised the resilience of the Ukrainian people as they continue to fight against Russia's now 19-month-old invasion. will help Ukraine harden its defenses ahead of what is likely to be a tough winter filled with renewed Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure to try to deprive innocent people of necessities like heat and electricity. During private talks with lawmakers on Capitol Hill, Zelensky said that without additional aid, his country will lose the war. Zelensky's trip to Washington came just hours after Russia launched massive airstrikes against Ukraine. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Cleanup and recovery is underway in Ukraine following another deadly Russian attack. Overnight, Russia struck the capital, Kiev, and other cities. At least five lives were lost and dozens more people in Ukraine were injured. Media mogul Rupert Murdoch announced today that he plans to step down from his roles leading his publishing and television empires 
after a career spanning seven decades. NPR's David Folken Flick reports Murdoch leaves a legacy of extraordinary business success, political influence, and scandal. Murdoch made his money on tabloid newspapers and kept expanding, buying prestige papers like the Times of London and the Wall Street Journal. He built a fourth television network and founded Fox News. Murdoch is now 92. He's had health scares in recent years, and he's departing after yet another season of crisis. Earlier this year, Murdoch testified he allowed Fox stars to embrace then-President Donald Trump's baseless claims of election fraud in 2020 in order to curry favor with viewers. That surfaced in a defamation case from an election tech company. Fox Corp paid more than three-quarters of a billion dollars to settle it. Murdoch says he'll continue to be engaged in news and the contest of ideas. David Folkenflick. NPR News. Hollywood studios and screenwriters resume negotiations for a second day, adding to hope that after nearly five months, the writer's strike could soon be over. Top entertainment executives uh, were at last night's discussions. Since May, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike for higher pay and residuals, as well as stronger job protections against the industry's increasing reliance on artificial intelligence. Members of SAG-AFTRA are also fighting for similar protections, and they went on strike in July. From Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts will establish goals to protect endangered species and increase biodiversity over the next 30 years. Governor Moore Healy signed an executive order today to protect wildlife and their habitats. The order will set biodiversity goals for 2030, 2040, and 2050. Healy calls the plan the strongest of its kind in the nation. This is a promise not only to protect biodiversity, but to protect the health and well-being of our residents and to protect our identity as a state. It's a down payment on ensuring a thriving future. Today, Healy also signed an executive order that ends the use and purchase of plastic bottles by state agencies. Monica Tibbetts-Nutt is the acting secretary of the Transportation Department. She says her department is making the switch to a more climate-friendly option. Going forward, we have stopped all orders of single-use plastic bottles. We have canceled contracts with vendors that have been supplying this and will now be switching over to aluminum. Each of the divisions will be given notice that you can use up your plastic bottles, but going forward, we're going to have to be using aluminum. Massachusetts is the first state in the nation to enact such ban. Community health centers in Massachusetts are receiving $5 million from the federal government to address the effects climate change is having on health. Brockton Neighborhood Health Center and East Boston Neighborhood Health Center were among the recipients. The state says the health centers provide care to many clients who lived in underserved communities. A group of state lawmakers is urging colleagues to allow statehouse staff to unionize. Legislative aides say their pay is poor and their hours are difficult. Supporters made their case today before the Joint Committee on State Administration and Regulatory Oversight. They said a union would help retain legislative staff. Senate President Karen Spilka has rejected a move by Senate staffers to form a union. In the forecast, sunny and nice out there right now. Clear and chilly overnight tonight. Could dip to nearly 50 degrees tonight. And for tomorrow, one more day of sunshine before things turn gray and damp for the weekend. 73 degrees in Boston. It's 5.06. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In a moment, we'll hear the story of a wooden structure that shifts what we know about the Stone Age. First, though, to the end of an era in the media world. At 92 years old, Rupert Murdoch is stepping away from his media empire, which includes Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. And not only in this country, but also Britain and Australia. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick has written a book on Murdoch and joins me with details. Howdy, David. Hey, Mary Louise. So Rupert Murdoch is 92 years old, which may partially answer my first question, but why is he stepping down now? Well, he says that it's time for him to think of other things. He said he'll still be engaged with uh, the contest of ideas in the news business and that people, he basically told his employees, I think only half jokingly, they shouldn't expect to uh, uh, step away early for the weekends that he'll be showing up in their newsrooms around the globe late on Friday afternoons. Uh, This is, I think, a concession to time. I think it looks like an an endeavor to help set up his elder son, Lachlan Murdoch, on his own to perhaps lead the family uh, holdings into the future. And also, you know, uh, Rupert played such a role in this uh, season of of crisis and and, uh, scandal that they are only somewhat emerging from, you know, it may be best for him to edge away from the from the spotlight. Speak more on that season of, of crisis and scandal. Is he stepping away under a cloud? Oh, well, there are two elements. He's absolutely, you know, this has been just a time of such uh, crisis because of what Fox News did in the wake of the 2020 elections. Uh, He and other top figures at Fox uh, knowingly allowed stars to embrace false claims of fraud uh, that somehow cheated then-President Donald Trump of the 2020 elections, as I say, absolutely baseless, but did so to allow them to chase after Trump's most core uh, voters, who were Fox's most core viewers, who had been alienated by Fox's reporting on election night that night, uh, showing Joe Biden to have the advantage in some ways. And therefore, uh, you know, he, he essentially put on the farthest back burner the idea of fact and reporting being preeminent in what he did, and he was a part of that. Uh, the evidence showed that he testified to that effect. But I think there's also the broader question of, you know, the legacy he leaves, both as a builder of this enormous media outfit and of creating a sort of punishing and pugilistic right-wing populism that ultimately was corrosive for the civil societies in which they operated. And that is the legacy that, in your view, he's going to leave on the media landscape? It's a twin legacy. I mean, think of what he built from a single uh, newspaper granted him by his father in a bequest when Murdoch was in his 20s, you know, in Adelaide on the uh, city on the the southern coast of Australia and built it into this global empire that not only was so dominant in these three big English speaking countries, but had, you know, major footprints in in Asia, in South Latin America, uh, even uh, stakes in the Middle East. You know, this was a truly global enterprise and he had prime ministers and presidents uh, seeking his uh, his input, his influence. But it was a corrupting influence that he had. And he ultimately not only was able to have a stake over the Republican Party, but found that its voters were pulling him uh, in a corrosive direction. So next up, Lachlan Murdoch. He's going to be taking over in full. Um, What's your sense of what kind of leader he will be? Well, I don't think he's going to do massive changes. I think his aspirations have been built around this day, getting full control. But I think, you know, Murdoch is still atop the family trust. And I think the real question is what happens a year or two down the line. Will he still be able to control it? Will his family members have the trust for him to lead as his father had done in such a vital way for so many decades? And PR media correspondent David Folkenflick. Thank you, David. You bet.
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky was in Washington today, asking Congress and President Biden for more military and economic aid for his country to defend itself against Russia's ongoing invasion. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says Zelensky told senators the stakes couldn't be higher. Mr. Zelensky said, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. For more on Zelensky's visit, we're joined now from the White House by NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Hey, Tam. Hey, Juana. So, Tam, Zelensky put the request for support in some very stark terms there, but this war has now dragged on for 18 months. Is he getting the same kind of reception that he did the last time that he visited Washington? Last time was in December, and Zelensky made a surprise trip, and there was a lot of fanfare. He delivered an address to a joint session of Congress. He and President Biden held a joint press conference at the White House. This time, there's still some ceremony, but the Ukrainian president simply isn't getting the same kind of welcome. Zelensky met with a big group of senators, and he met with key House members, but he didn't get an invite to address the full House of Representatives, where Speaker Kevin McCarthy is struggling to wrangle the far-right contingent of his Republicans. Um, and there was no White House press conference this time either. Um, we've seen these fissures forming early on. Supporting Ukraine was politically quite easy, and, and it still is for Democrats. But there's now a small but loud group of Republicans in Congress who oppose sending any more money to Ukraine, 28 of them between House House and Senate announced today that they would oppose the request that Biden had made for funding, asking a series of questions about how the war effort is going and what President Biden's exit strategy is. Um, and that does reflect what polls show about Republican voters and their increasing skepticism of U.S. spending in Ukraine. OK, and Tam, what about Zelensky's ask? What does he want and how likely is he to get it? So Zelensky has some specific requests for weapons systems and military equipment. But more broadly, he is urging Congress to approve the $24 billion in emergency assistance the White House requested back in August. Um, and this supplemental funding request is getting wrapped up into that much larger drama over funding the federal government for next year. So um, at the moment, House Republicans can't even seem to pass anything, much less a Ukraine funding bill where there's internal dissent. Uh, but Republican Michael McCall, who's chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, expressed confidence after meeting with Zelensky that once they work through the current political machinations, uh, something will pass. They need it, um, and they're going to get it. I, I, well, I said, you know, the majority of the majority support this. I know there's some dissension on both sides, but I said a war of attrition is not going to win this. That's what Putin wants, because he wants to break the will of the American people and the Europeans. He says Republicans want to see more accountability about how the money is being spent, and they want a plan for victory from the White House. Though I have to say, such a plan is unlikely to come, because the president has said many times, this is Ukraine's war to fight, and they are the ones that have to set the terms for how the war ends. As you mentioned, Tam, all of this is wrapped up with the government funding fight going on here in Washington. But as a matter of timing, how soon does Ukraine need the money and the weapons that Zelensky is asking Washington for? 
So all year, the White House has been announcing new weapons deliveries to Ukraine every few weeks or so. There was one announced today, but that is all coming out of funding that was approved by Congress a long time ago before Republicans controlled the House. That pot of money is set to run out at the end of this month, uh, at the very same time, indeed, that the government could shut down if Congress doesn't figure out something. Uh, So let's say Congress does approve that $24 billion that the White House is asking for. That will only last. Ukraine through the end of this calendar year. So we could be back around Christmas because Ukraine is going to need more money. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Thank you. You're welcome. A team of archaeologists has announced a surprising discovery about our very early ancestors, Stone Age humans who were building with wood some half million years ago. As NPR's Gabriel Spitzer explains, it's thought to be the oldest known wooden structure in the world. The Colombo River snakes along the border between Zambia and Tanzania before plunging nearly 800 feet over Colombo Falls. In 2019, up above the falls, Maggie Katongo and a crew of archaeologists were burrowing into the soggy banks. Of course, as we went down and uh, kept on digging, we found the water and it kept on coming up and we had to use uh, buckets to kind of remove the water from the trenches. Katongo is curator of archaeology at Livingstone Museum in Zambia. And that water they were bailing was key to what they were looking for. Ancient wood worked by early humans into tools and structures. Wood artifacts don't last like stone tools do, but after thousands of years under water and clay, fragments can survive. Larry Barham of the University of Liverpool was chief of the excavation. He says eventually they found more than just fragments. When we first uncovered it, it didn't look particularly exciting. It's uh, basically one log lying horizontally over another one. But when you look closely and you remove the sand around it, you can see where the one sits on top of the other is a notch. That notch and other parts of the logs showed telltale signs of being cut, chopped, and shaped by human tools. This thing was an intended component. It was, in in a sense, engineered. But engineered for what? Barham mulled over the question. To interpret this, I drew on my, my childhood experience with a toy called Lincoln Logs. People laughed at me. They still do. You know, your listeners will all be familiar with Lincoln Log and then the, the notches which allow you to pile up and make a log cabin. And the Lincoln Logs really, really helped. Barham concluded the wood formed part of a base or platform. If so, it's by far the oldest known example of people building with wood. The team dated it to about 476,000 years ago. That's well before modern humans evolved. Early hominins are thought to have been nomadic. This site suggests they could have had at least semi-permanent settlements. Maggie Katongo says that has experts rethinking their assumptions about Stone Age people. When we make reference to these hominins, we always perceive them as primitive. But from the technology that we've been able to discover at the site, you'd see how sophisticated um, these hominins were. The team's findings are published in the journal Nature. Gabriel Spitzer, NPR News.
listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, pink diamonds are beautiful and extremely rare. Geologists say they're also damaged. You can damage a diamond. You can actually take that diamond and twist it and bend it a little. And if you bend it and twist it just the right amount, it turns pink. For a long time, one Australian mine enjoyed a bounty of pink diamonds. Now researchers have figured out why. That's coming up in about 20 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. Stocks tumbled today. The Dow fell nearly one and a tenth percent. S&P lost one and six tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq fell more than one and eight tenths of a percent. All the day's business news coming up at 6:30. It's now 5:19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions. FreshCityKitchen.com, and the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Starts tomorrow. More at theumbrellaarts.org. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Sunshine, low humidity, pretty beautiful today. Things turn chilly tonight as temperatures fall to about 50 degrees. And for tomorrow's sunshine for one more day, may not even hit 70 tomorrow. For the weekend, clouds roll in, rain comes down, could have showers both Saturday and Sunday, temperatures in the mid-60s tops. 72 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Buying a home has gotten a lot more expensive now that mortgage rates have topped 7%. Some people are priced out of the market altogether, and many who already own homes are reluctant to sell. Companies that build houses are exploring new ways to keep prices in reach. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. The National Association of Realtors said this morning home sales in August were down more than 15 percent from a year ago. The slump was a little less pronounced in the South, which the realtors chalked up to the region's strong job growth. We're attracting new residents every day and they have to live somewhere. Trey Lewis is vice president of sales for Old South, a big independent home builder in Tennessee. More than 40 percent of newly built homes nationwide are now sold to first-time buyers. Lewis says building homes at a price buyers can swing at today's interest rates is a challenge. It certainly is a math equation. You know, people do have to be able to afford where they live, and we have to build the product to meet that demand. These days, that might mean ditching hardwood floors for less expensive laminate or even carpet. 
using fiberglass in lieu of tile in the bathroom, and doing without those granite countertops in the kitchen. But the biggest way to cut cost is to simply build smaller, which saves on materials and lets builders squeeze more homes on a piece of land. Nationwide, the average size of a new home has shrunk by about 6% over the last two years. Townhomes are the new entry-level starter home for families. We're doing everything we can to lower the size and the cost of the home and just make it as easy as possible for someone to buy a new home. That downsizing trend is a turnaround from two years ago when mortgage rates were under 3%. Robert Dietz, who's chief economist for the National Association of Home Builders, says at that point in the pandemic, home buyers wanted as much square footage as they could get. If you look at, say, the end of 2021, People were looking at Zoom rooms and more home office space. As interest rates have increased, one way to reduce the price of the home is to produce a slightly smaller home where possible. Restrictive zoning still makes it hard to build townhomes and other affordable options in many parts of the country. Builder Trey Lewis says that's slowly beginning to change. It's a process. Growth is not easy, especially in Middle Tennessee. The Nashville area has embraced higher density. The outlying areas where the land's more affordable has not. But shifts in demand may force a change in housing policy. Nationwide, condominium sales were up between July and August, even as single-family home sales were down. Nashville realtor Kevin Wilson says he's seen growing interest in townhomes and condos. That's partly for affordability, he says, but also reflects buyers' changing lifestyles. They want turnkey. I don't have to do anything when I walk in, and that includes paint. Those buyers, which I would say is the majority, are going to smaller square footage, new construction, townhomes, condos, things that are completely just ease of living, walk right into and not have to worry about maintenance issues. Some buyers still want traditional single family home, though, with the two car garage. Wilson recalls one client who looked at a couple of houses like that that needed more work than he could afford. He tried talking the man into a townhome, but his client wasn't interested. He stuck it out and was able to find a single-family home for $350,000. And what he sacrificed in that was square footage. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath, but it gave him the yard that he was looking for and gave him the location he was looking for. Some buyers have decided smaller is better, especially when it comes to their monthly mortgage payment. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Texas is at the center of the fight over book censorship. In fact, it is second only to Florida in total instances of book bans in school libraries. That's according to a new report out today by PEN America. In the West Texas city of Midland, efforts to remove or recategorize public library books that touch on race, sex, and the LGBTQ community have kicked off a battle over censorship and what is considered obscene. Mitch Borden of Marfa Public Radio has our story. As Midland's Centennial Library opened on a recent Saturday, Midland County Commissioner Diane Anderson arrived with a few friends to take books out of the public library's young adult section. Go through a book, read it, and if you feel that it needs to be pulled out, you pull it out. And you show it to me. Commissioner Anderson claims she's not banning books. She just wants to put them out of reach of impressionable readers. But it's her second visit in the last few weeks. She first surprised librarians when she led a group into the children's section, removing dozens of books. Those titles include an ABCs of Equality, Anti-Racist Baby, and My Two Dads and Me. 
Those were removed and locked in a back room because she believed they were inappropriate. Some of those books still haven't been returned to shelves. This time around, Anderson and her supporters didn't want to tell me what they are looking for. A court of silver flames was taken off the shelf. They're hiding the book from me. Okay, like you're invading my space. Can you just back off? One volunteer, Kathy Broughton, tries to hide what she took off the shelf and refuses to talk to me. Back off. This is private business. Back off. But this is a public library. There is a process in which citizens can request that librarians remove or recategorize material, but these self-appointed censors don't have the authority to remove books on a whim. On this day, they ended up checking out books to make their case at county meetings that there's obscene material in the stacks. What's happening in Midland is part of a larger national trend, but it's especially big in Texas. In 2022, according to the American Library Association, the state led the nation with the most documented demands to restrict books and censor libraries. Commissioner Anderson has spearheaded the effort in Midland. During a recent meeting, she said she had to act because library staff weren't doing anything about what she calls explicit and offensive material. The community standard of what is appropriate for the books in our library was never going to come from our library director. A new county policy states books in the children's and teen sections that are deemed obscene under the Texas Penal Code have to be moved to the library's adult section. But in Texas, to be considered obscene, a work has to be sexually explicit and, quote, lacks serious literary, artistic, political, and scientific value. And the county's library director says there's no evidence any book in the county's collection meet that standard. That hasn't stopped officials, including Midland County Judge Terry Johnson, from defending efforts to pull books he claims are pornographic. Nothing's been banned, nothing's been burnt. We're just saying we don't want our young people exposed to some of the things that they're exposed to. That includes books about sex education, surviving sexual assault, as well as works about drag queens and sexual identity. Shirley Robinson with the Texas Library Association says ignoring policies and procedures to move books off shelves or to recategorize them is censorship. It's a clear violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendment, and when you start removing books from an area or putting them in a locked room or um, creating barriers for people to access information, that's when you start violating those rights. Heather Brenemis, a mom of four, has become a vocal opponent to censorship in Midland. She's repeatedly heard people say they are just trying to protect children. But she says this is clearly part of a political agenda. So I feel like this is a facade. The only thing that will stop it are lawsuits, unfortunately. At this point, no one has filed suit against Midland County. For their part, many of the county commissioners remain adamant that what they see as obscene books need to be moved out of the children's and young adult sections. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why are some vacant subsidized housing units in the state being used for office space and even a police station instead of being used as homes for the thousands of people on the housing wait list? That story coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR. It's been pretty darn great out there today. Another clear night tonight. Chillier, though, falling to the low 50s. And then for tomorrow, look for more sunshine. High temperatures about 69 degrees. The time is 530. If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? 
it's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple, at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and Ukraine's leader are meeting at the White House amid uncertainty about additional funding for its ongoing war with Russia. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says this administration wants to make it clear support for Ukraine is unyielding. President Biden will announce a new package of military assistance today that includes significant air defense capabilities to help Ukraine protect its people. These capabilities will help Ukraine harden its defenses ahead of what is likely to be a tough winter filled with renewed Russian attacks on Ukrainian critical infrastructure to try to deprive innocent people of necessities like heat and electricity. Meanwhile, Moscow launched another wave of airstrikes today against five cities in Ukraine that hit critical civilian infrastructure, knocking out power in many different parts of the country. President Biden will unveil a new office for gun violence prevention tomorrow. As NPR's Elena Moore tells us, it's a win for longtime advocates who have pushed politicians to take more action. Three people with knowledge of the details confirmed the plan to NPR. They spoke on the condition of anonymity. The White House has declined to comment. But gun control organizers are applauding the decision, saying it signals a shift in how Democrats address gun violence. To Poe Murray, the chair of the gun control organization Newtown Action Alliance, it's a crucial next step. And, she says, moves like this could benefit Biden as he runs for re-election. I do believe that the president is aware that this is a winning issue for him, and it is the high political ground, and obviously it's a high moral ground. Biden's expected plan comes as gun control legislation remains stalled and unlikely in the current Congress. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston University is expanding an inquiry of the school's Center for Anti-Racist Research to include management culture. As WBR's Carrie Young reports, that news comes shortly after university officials began to examine the center's management of grants. BU launched its initial inquiry after receiving multiple complaints. A BU spokesperson said those complaints were filed shortly after, quote, a number of employees at the center were laid off. According to a report from the Boston Globe, former employees described the work environment as dysfunctional and unable to meet many of the organization's goals. The Center for Anti-Racist Research was launched at BU in 2020. WBUR has reached out to its founder and director, Dr. Ibram Kendi, for a comment, but has not yet received a response. In a written statement, a BU spokesperson told WBUR the university believes strongly in the center's mission and that Kendi takes strong exception to the allegations in recent media reports. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. 
This note, Boston University holds the broadcast license for WBUR. Physicians' assistants are urging lawmakers to remove hurdles to caring for patients. They say they don't need the supervision that is now mandated. The providers say that they're able to make diagnoses, prescribe medication, and treat patients. They want flexibility they were granted during the pandemic to become permanent. The nonprofit that oversees planning and transportation in the Longwood Medical Area is relaunching and expanding its Commute Works program. The Longwood Collective will provide resources and alternatives to driving in the Boston neighborhood with its hospitals and colleges. The group says more than 70 percent of the 95,000 who work or go to school in the Longwood area walk or bike, carpool, or use mass transit. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener You, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com. And Volante Farms in Needham, reminding you to shop, eat, and drink local this fall. Enjoy homegrown farm-to-table meals to go twice a week. VolanteFarms.com for menus. What's been a glorious day turns into a fine and dry night tonight. Temperatures about 50 degrees. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine for one more day. Then it takes most of the weekend off, leaving us with showers Saturday and Sunday. Highs around the mid-60s for the weekend. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And it is time for this week's Science Roundup with our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast, Regina Barber and Maria Godoy in the studio. Hey there, you two. Hey. Hey. So you have brought us three science stories, three that caught your eye this week. What have you got? Well, we've got an outbreak of the Nipah virus in Kerala, India. What mysterious pink diamonds in Australia today tell us about what happened on Earth hundreds of millions of years ago. And how cockatoos woo their lovers by moonlighting as drummers. (laughs) Okay, so virus, pink diamonds, and uh, romantic cockatoos. I got to go for the third one first. Maria, tell me about... The wild palm cockatoos, they're they are drumming out love songs? Yeah, this is as fabulous as it sounds. So these palm cockatoos only <laughs> live in remote parts of northern Australia and lowland New Guinea, some offshore islands. Female cockatoos only lay one egg every two years. Which means they have to be super picky about choosing a male mate. Right. And as TLC taught us all in the 90s, they don't want no scrubs. Which means the male <laughs> palm cockatoos have to go all out to convince the females to mate with them. Rob Heinstone has been studying these birds for decades. He's a conservation biologist at Australian National University. And he says the males put on a pretty incredible show. They start off by whistling and making lots of calls and noises to catch her eye. At the same time, he's erecting his massive crest and he's blushing his red cheeks and he's bobbing and dancing on the branch twirling, doing everything he can to get her attention. Okay, I have red cheeks imagining him erecting his massive crest. (laughs) (laughs) 
on his head, right? On his head, on yes, on his, his head. head. Okay, so it's a family show. <laughs> fast forward to the drumming. What happens? Well, that's the big finale, right? After he's been whistling and bobbing, the male cockatoo goes out on a limb and makes a big show of cutting off the biggest tree branch. And he does it with his bill to basically show how strong he is. And then he whittles that branch down with his beak and starts drumming. And in a new study published by the Royal Society, researchers report that each bird actually has his own preferred style of drumstick. Some like them short and fat. Others prefer long and skinny. Sometimes they use seed pods, too. But they each have their own signature instrument style. Not only that, each bird has its own signature drumming style, too. Heinzone says he can recognize which male palm cockatoo is drumming just by listening. Sort of like people say you can tell when Keith Moon is drumming on a Who album. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure the Who are losing any sleep over that. But um, it, Maria, tell me what the female cockatoos are doing while all this is going on. Yeah, well, so Heinzone says this whole elaborate musical mating display is how male palm cockatoos show they have the brains and creativity to be worthy as mates. So the females watch this closely the whole time, and the males do these displays over and over until they finally get the girl. Until they get the girl. So a happy ending. That is delightful. Speaking of delightful, pink diamonds. This is our next topic. Pink diamonds in Australia. Regina. Yeah, so for a long time, the Argyle Diamond Mine in Western Australia enjoyed a bounty of pink diamonds. Until they closed in 2020, they were the leading supplier of them. But the whole time, geologists have been stumped by how the diamonds got there and when. Yeah, see, pink diamonds are beautiful, but they're very rare. Like, if you scooped up 500 random diamonds from Argyle... As you do. Yeah, exactly. Only one would be pink. And they're even more rare at other mines, which makes them pretty coveted stones. If you'll remember, Ben Affleck gave J-Lo a pink diamond during their first engagement in the early aughts. <laughs> so many engagements ago. Um, <laughs> okay, so pink diamonds, you said they're very rare. Why? It's because they require a different kind of physics to be made. So you have your classic colorless diamond, and that's made from pure carbon put under extreme pressure. But one of the researchers, geologist Hugo Olirook, says pink diamonds are damaged diamonds. You can damage a diamond. You can actually take that diamond and twist it and bend it a little. And if you bend it and twist it just the right amount, it turns pink. And the structures inside a diamond get compressed, and the light traveling through the pink diamond makes it that color. So geologists have long known that diamonds are generally formed deep down. More than 90 miles deep down. Inside the Earth's crust. And they tended to form back when there were supercontinents on the surface of the Earth. Okay, hang on, because I'm trying to keep up here. Supercontinents, this is um, this is when they were all smushed together like a gazillion years ago? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Pangaea is the most recent one. There was another supercontinent called Nuna, and scientists think that these pink diamonds were created during the formation of the Nuna supercontinent, some 1.8 billion years ago. Yeah, and Hugo and his colleagues wrote about this in the journal Nature Communications this week. And through more precise dating, they were able to figure out that when Nuna broke apart 500 million years later, the diamond spewed out. The subcontinents banged together and stretched, which caused a volcanic eruption of diamonds. A volcano of diamonds. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. Sign me up. Okay. Now, our final story that you have brought to us, it's, um, it's a little bit more of a downer, but it mm -hmm. is an interesting detective tale. Yeah. This is an epidemiological mystery. It is in southern India. It's an outbreak of a virus called the Nipah virus. Tell me more. 
Right. Well, so Kamala Thyagarajan wrote about the outbreak for NPR's Goats and Soda blog. It's the fourth outbreak in the state of Kerala since 2018. There's been two deaths. The first one was at the end of August and six cases so far. Six cases so far. And what does it do to you? Well, this is a virus that jumps from animals to people. Fruit bats are the primary hosts. And it's on the World Health Organization's list of viruses with pandemic potential. Mm. And the usual symptoms can include severe respiratory problems like pneumonia, even encephalitis, which is brain swelling. And that can bring fevers, headaches, sometimes disorientation, or even lead to coma. And the virus can be deadly, too. There was a big outbreak in Malaysia in the late 90s that killed over 100 people. Ugh. Okay, this sounds awful. Do we know how this current outbreak, the one in India, began? Well, scientists know that Nipah can spread from bats to humans when bats contaminate things people eat or drink. In some past outbreaks in Bangladesh, that's been through the sap of date palm trees. And when people drank the palm sap, they got sick. Researchers are testing bats in Kerala for the virus to see if that might be the case here, but they haven't figured out yet exactly how this outbreak started. But they do know that once this particular strain of Nipah virus jumps from animals to people, it can spread from human to human through bodily fluids or infected food. And several cases in this outbreak are linked to a hospital where the first person who died was getting treated. So it seems that the infected person went to the hospital and it began to spread from there. Now, containment measures have been put in place and doctors in Kerala are optimistic. Me too. Uh, Very much wishing them luck in containing that particular outbreak. Maria Godoy and Regina Barber from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, which is where you can learn about new discoveries and everyday mysteries and all the science behind the headlines. Regina, Maria, thank you. Oh, thank Thank you. you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Housing advocates say Massachusetts has a desperate need for affordable places to live. But a WBUR and ProPublica investigation finds many local housing agencies are quietly using vacant subsidized apartments for things other than housing. WBUR's Todd Wallach reports, starting with an example from the North Shore. Don Rivard leads the Tenant Association at an apartment tower for low-income seniors in downtown Salem. We're on the second floor. Rivard says one day last year, he was on his way to talk to a neighbor when he came across something odd. I was coming down here and I walked this way and I noticed that these two doors were wide open. The doors were for two side-by-side apartments where seniors had been living. Rivard was curious, so he peeked inside. Instead of sofas and other living room furniture, he saw... Files and file boxes. Took me much of 10 seconds to realize that. Walk out and walk in here that was brightly lit. And I saw a desk and office equipment. It turns out the Salem Housing Authority was using one of the units for file storage and a break room. 
The other was for its finance department. Records show the agency got permission from the state to temporarily turn the empty units into offices because of COVID. Three years later, Salem is still using the apartments for extra office space. WBUR tried to get answers from the head of the housing agency. Hi, you've reached Kathy Hogue, Executive Director for Salem Housing Authority. Hogue did not return our calls for an interview. She also declined to let us see the offices, explaining in an email they contained confidential documents. Public records obtained by WBUR and ProPublica show local housing agencies have converted at least 120 apartments across Massachusetts for other uses. For instance, Boston converted 11 units to offices and set aside another for a children's program. Housing authorities in Beverly, Fall River, and Quincy turned apartments into laundry rooms. And the Somerville Housing Authority repurposed 10 units, including a two-bedroom for a police station. It makes me want to cry when I think about the families that we've had in shelter waiting and waiting and waiting for a unit. Laura Meisenhelter is executive director at the North Shore Community Action Programs, which runs a family shelter. She's appalled the units are being repurposed. Sitting on my side, knowing that we've had families in shelter for more than a year, they would definitely be like, I need a place to live with my family. I think, I, you know, like that seems like a bigger priority than a break room or a storage facility. You know, you can get you can get sheds at Home Depot. But State Housing Secretary Ed Augustus says there are sometimes good reasons to repurpose apartments, whether it's for a library or a laundry room in senior housing. Maybe they're elderly folks who have trouble going from one building to the next building and carrying their laundry. Augustus says the state largely defers to local officials on how to use the apartments. Public records show the state approves 96% of the conversion requests. So there's always going to be unique circumstances, and that's why a lot of this is driven by the local housing authorities identifying what they think the needs are for their residents. In addition to converting apartments, some local agencies routinely leave units vacant for years when planning major renovations or redevelopment. In Somerville, contractors are demolishing a public housing complex called Clarendon Hill and replacing it with a private development with market rate and affordable units. Huge excavators unearth soil to clear the way for a foundation. Joe Macaluso, who runs the Somerville Housing Authority, says the project will allow the city to replace aging buildings with modern apartments. We see it as really the biggest affordable housing development uh, in the history of Somerville at one time. But WBUR discovered that as part of the redevelopment, Macaluso's agency kept units empty for as long as six years before construction started in March. When tenants moved out, Somerville stopped trying to replace them. We didn't want to bring folks in and then have to move them out shortly thereafter. Macaluso says it was a right decision, even though the apartments were still livable. He says that's because the apartments were slated to be eventually demolished. So we would have had to inject capital, good money, after bad money, just to get them ready once they became vacant. Some housing advocates disagree with the decision to leave the units vacant for so long, even though the state approved it. Mike Libby is executive director of the Somerville Homeless Coalition. If you were to ask me or ask our clients, they would say that's four or five years. I'm not in a shelter or out in the street. Other housing agencies like Chelmsford and Beverly have also kept units empty for years before work began on major projects. At the same time, the state says more than 180,000 people in Massachusetts are waiting for a subsidized apartment 
they can call their own. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. You can visit WBUR.org for key takeaways from our investigation with ProPublica into the state's low-income housing. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel in Egypt, October 6th and 8th. HandelandHaydn.org. 70 degrees now in Boston. Clear and chilly tonight. Should dip to about 50 degrees. Tomorrow, one more day of sunshine before things turn gray and damp for the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 550. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Committed to protecting your intellectual property one idea at a time. Learn more at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Ocean State Job Lot whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Mexican government is helping defend one of its citizens who was arrested under a new state immigration law in Florida. That law makes it a felony to transport undocumented immigrants into the state. The administration of Mexico's president has harshly criticized Florida. And now, NPR's Greg Allen reports, the country is stepping up to defend one of the first people arrested under under the law. Raquel Lopez Aguilar was driving a van with six other people on board when he was pulled over by state troopers in August. The arresting officer said he stopped the van because it had, quote, obviously darker than legal tent on the rear windows, and the windshield had several large cracks. Border Patrol agents were called. The report says Lopez Aguilar told them he and the others were traveling from Georgia to Tampa. He was arrested and charged with four counts of human smuggling. Lopez Aguilar's defense is being paid for by the Mexican government under a program that provides legal help to nationals in the U.S. Mexico's consul in Orlando has called Lopez Aguilar's arrest, quote, complete injustice. He's visited Lopez Aguilar in jail and has scheduled a news conference tomorrow. Lopez Aguilar is believed to be the first person arrested under a Florida law. If convicted, he would face up to five years in prison on each of the four counts of human smuggling. When Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the law in May, he bragged it was the toughest migrant legislation in the country. They're thinking about coming from the border, smuggling people somewhere. Florida is not a good place for you to do that, okay, because you're going to end up facing pushback. Uh, If you want to go somewhere where they are a sanctuary state, then do California or do Illinois or something, but don't do here. In July, days after it went into effect, Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, condemned the law and urged Americans not to support DeSantis in his run for the presidency. Not one vote, Lopez Obrador said, for those who despise migrants. DeSantis has shot back, saying Florida won't let their immigration laws be dictated by Mexico City. The law invalidates driver's licenses and IDs issued to undocumented immigrants by other states. It requires all businesses in Florida to use the federal e-verify system to check workers' eligibility. It also requires hospitals that accept Medicaid to ask those it treats about their citizenship status. But it's the provision making it a felony to transport undocumented migrants that's the most controversial. 
A coalition of immigrant rights groups has filed a legal challenge to that section of the law in federal court. They say it's vaguely worded, making it a felony to transport people who may have entered the country illegally and since then have not been, quote, inspected by the federal government. The law also maintains the Florida law is unconstitutional because it unilaterally seeks to regulate the transport of migrants. Authority, the courts have said, belongs to the federal government. Florida's attorney general is defending the law, dismissing concerns that it's unconstitutional. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. 25 years ago today, Olympic gold medalist Florence Griffith Joyner, better known as Flojo, died suddenly in her sleep. She's one of the most decorated Olympic female sprinters in American history. And she's celebrated for her speed and style, six-inch painted nails, and colorful one-legged running suits. NPR's Ashley Montgomery has this remembrance. The 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. In the packed Olympic Stadium, Florence Griffith Joyner prepares for the 200-meter sprint. She's the one in lane five, wearing a gold bracelet on each wrist and gold earrings. Griffith Joyner and the other sprinters crouch down, with their feet in the starting blocks, and then... Griffith Joyner burst away from the other sprinters. She is so fast. As the camera focuses on her face, she starts to smile. She glides across the finish line, easily winning gold. She kneels on the ground and presses her hands into the track. Her long red, white, blue, and gold painted nails visible to the world. Griffith Joyner beats the world record for the 200-meter sprint with 21.34 seconds. That record still stands today. She can She lands endorsement deals in Japan, as well as acting parts and cameos on American TV. She even works with LJN Toys, who markets a doll in her likeness, long painted nails and one-legged running suit included. The Flojo doll comes with one outfit and Flojo nail decals. But there was skepticism about her performance at the Olympics. A year after the Games in 1989, a former American track athlete named Daryl Robinson told a European magazine that Griffith Joyner gave him money to buy her growth hormones. Griffith Joyner denied the allegations and told the New York Times, quote, it's all fabricated lies about drugs. I'd be a fool to take drugs. Here's sports commentator John Feinstein on NPR's Morning Edition in 1998. In sports, especially Olympic sports, uh, those rumors are always going to be there, and they, they were something she was asked about throughout her career, and which she always denied. The Medical Commission for the International Olympic Committee, better known as the IOC, says it conducted rigorous drug testing on Griffith Joyner during the 1988 Olympics, and she turned up clean. I knew that I have never taken drugs, so I didn't let that bother me, what people said. Here's Griffith Joyner was, uh, speaking with journalists Anne Ligori in 1991. I just tried not to take it personal and then move on. Like and so she did, just five months after the Olympic Games in Seoul. Griffith Joyner retired from track. She became a mom. She pursued fashion design. She served as the first female co-chair of the U.S. President's Council on Physical Fitness and Sports. And she continued to combine sports and style. Hi, I'm Florence Griffith Joyner, and the only place you can find the new Pacers uniforms is here. She even designed the NBA uniforms for the Indiana Pacers. Griffith Joyner did make an attempt to compete in the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta. 
but her return from retirement was short-lived. An injury prevented her from qualifying, and she never competed in the Olympics again. Two years later, on September 21st, 25 years ago today, Griffith Joyner died from an epileptic seizure caused by an abnormality of blood vessels in her brain. She was 38 years old. Today, Griffith Joyner is enshrined as one of the greatest athletes in track. She revolutionized women sprinting with her speed and fashion. Here she is speaking to NPR after the Seoul Olympics. Getting down in those starting blocks and just hearing all the people cheering for me, that gave me extra energy. And everyone here has been extraordinarily nice to me, kind to me, and treated me with um, great respect. Florence Griffith Joyner still holds the world records for the 100 and 200 meter sprints. Ashley Montgomery, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, celebrating its 75th anniversary, using data to make a difference and addressing the challenges of a changing world. Learn more at pewtrusts.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, at macfound.org. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org rentals. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey signs an executive order for the state to halt and reverse the loss of species and habitats. One leading environmentalist applauds the move, saying areas rich in biodiversity have a direct effect on our lives. Our story is coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we hear from New York Republican Congressman Mike Lawler about his efforts to avoid a government shutdown at the end of September. Some people who take the popular drug Ozempic say they feel depressed, anxious, and they're having suicidal thoughts. Experts say they want to investigate. 
So I always think it makes sense to take side effects like that seriously, particularly in drugs that are relatively new and that we're still learning about. This problem is not listed as a possible side effect in Ozempic's literature. These stories are much more still to come. It's 6.01. Live from NPR, Live News, NPR News in New York, in New York. I'm, I'm Jack, Jack Spear. Spear. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden have welcomed Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and his wife Olena Zelenska to the White House today, part of a whirlwind trip to Washington. It also included meetings with congressional leaders. Biden again praised the resilience of the Ukrainian people as they continue to fight against Russia's now 19-month-old invasion. Mr. President, the brave people of Ukraine, and that's not hyperbole, the people of Ukraine have shown enormous bravery, enormous bravery, have inspired the world, literally inspired the world with their determination to defend these principles. As he has done in the past, Zelensky imploring Washington for more financial and military aid. Earlier today, Zelensky told lawmakers on Capitol Hill that despite the progress Ukraine has made, it will not be able to prevail without further U.S. help. Media magnet Rupert Murdoch announced today he will step down from his roles leading his publishing and television empires after a career spanning seven decades. As NPR's David Folkenflik reports, Murdoch leaves a legacy of extraordinary business success, political influence and scandal. Murdoch made his money on tabloid newspapers and kept expanding, buying prestige papers like the Times of London and the Wall Street Journal. He built a fourth television network and founded Fox News. Murdoch is now 92. He's had health scares in recent years, and he's departing after yet another season of crisis. Earlier this year, Murdoch testified he allowed Fox stars to embrace then-President Donald Trump's baseless claims of election fraud in 2020 in order to curry favor with viewers. That surfaced in a defamation case from an election tech company. Fox Corp paid more than three-quarters of a billion dollars to settle it. Murdoch says he'll continue to be engaged in news and the contest of ideas. David Folkenflik. NPR News. There are apparently some signs of progress in terms of the now five-month-long strike by Hollywood writers and negotiators for the Writers Guild of America, as well as the heads of major media companies. The union representing 11,000 writers went on strike in early May, with the work stoppage hitting its 143rd day today. Stocks ended the session lower as NPR's David Gurr reports Wall Street's paying close attention to what's happening in Washington. This is the third day in a row the stock market has lost ground. All three major indexes closed lower. The end of the fiscal year is just days away, and lawmakers are running out of time to pass a bill to avert a government shutdown. A day after the Federal Reserve decided not to raise interest rates and policymakers suggested rates are likely to remain high for longer, tech stocks fell. So did shares of the big banks. Morgan Stanley ended the day almost 2.6 percent lower and Goldman Sachs was down almost 2 percent. There was a sell-off in U.S. Treasuries. Yields on two-year and 10-year government bonds haven't been this high in about 15 years. David Gura, NPR News, New York. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 370 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. For the first time this century, summertime electricity demand in New England peaked in September. It happened September 7th, a day when the high temperature at Logan Airport hit 93 degrees. 
That caused customers to use more than 23,000 gigawatts of electricity from the regional power grid between 5 and 6 p.m. The day before had a high of 22,000 gigawatts. That had been the record. Massachusetts Department of Public Health is confirming 2,700 new COVID cases. The weekly data release this afternoon reports 29 additional COVID-related deaths. The seven-day test positive rate was nearly 11 percent. More than 200,000 people have been removed from the Massachusetts health program, MassHealth, since April. The state is going through the roles to determine who is eligible for state health benefits and who no longer qualifies because they earn too much money. Assistant Secretary for MassHealth Mike Levine says the number of people leaving the program will increase in the coming months. We are seeing what we expected, which is an increasing number of closures and a reduction in our caseload beginning to pick up. The state says about half the people who lost coverage failed to provide enough information to prove they were eligible. MassHealth still provides health coverage for more than 2.3 million people in the state. Governor Healy says the temporary protected status the Biden administration is granting Venezuelans will have limited impact in Massachusetts as the state deals with an influx of migrants. Healy says she wants extended protections for Haitian families who represent a large percentage of the state's emergency shelter system. The governor is also asking for more federal funding and expedited work permits for migrants. The FAA is investigating after two commercial flights were illuminated by a green laser near Boston. It happened about 5.40 this morning. Both incidents involved jet blue flights. There were no injuries reported. 69 degrees now in the Boston area. Pull up the blanket tonight. Temperatures could fall to 50. Sunshine is back for one more day tomorrow. Should reach the upper 60s. And then gray skies and rain showers should arrive for the weekend, both Saturday and Sunday with highs in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. It's 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. By this point, it's well known that the diabetes drug Ozempic can induce pretty dramatic weight loss in some users. But that might not be its only side effect. Some people say it's causing significant mental health problems, from anxiety and depression to suicidal thoughts. NPR's Sydney Lupkin has been looking into it and will join us in a few minutes. First, though, we are nine days away from what is looking more and more likely to be a government shutdown. Over the coming days, we will be reporting on the real consequences if a shutdown does come to pass, from veterans who don't receive their benefits to federal employees who get furloughed to your flight getting canceled, if the FAA and TSA are not at full strength. The chief obstacle to moving spending bills forward is not Partisan bickering, not this time, but infighting among Republicans, specifically among Republicans in the House. They control that chamber, but cannot reach agreement on how best to cut spending. But one moderate Republican is calling this seemingly intractable situation, quote, a clown show. That Republican is Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman Lawler, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. A clown show. Explain what you mean. Well, listen, the American people elected a House Republican majority to serve as a check and balance on the Biden administration and to rein in uh, reckless spending and to right-size our government. 
Uh, but in order to do that, we have to work cohesively within the House uh, caucus to do it. And unfortunately, we have some folks who are uh, refusing to cooperate in a serious and meaningful way to find compromise within the caucus. You need 218 votes. And some of these people are just stuck on this mindset that it's their way or the highway, uh, and that if they don't get what they want, they're going to stomp their feet and you know throw a temper tantrum uh, until they do. So the clowns in this analogy are the far-right members of your party? It's not even whether they're far-right or, or not. I mean, it's a handful of people who, throughout the course of the year, have proven themselves time and again to operate like this. Uh, and it's just totally inappropriate when you're within a conference. Uh, you know, these are the same people who voted against Kevin McCarthy, despite the majority of the conference uh, supporting him. These are the same people that have continually voted down rules, uh, despite, you know, a rule not failing in, you know, nearly 20 years. They don't care. And so as far as I'm concerned, when, when that's the situation, uh, they basically leave people that are reasonable with very little choice uh, but to uh, find ways to, to work uh, across the aisle. When speaking of accomplishing things or not accomplishing things, we are seeing news that the House uh, is giving up on negotiations and about to dismiss and go home until Tuesday. Is that right? <clears throat> that seems to be the, the report. But, you know, look, I don't think we should be going home at this point. Uh, we have a lot of work to do between now and September 30th. Uh, I think, you know, frankly, these folks who, uh, once again, after agreeing to, to move an appropriations bill, uh, stalled it once more, you know, they, need, they should be here uh, working like everyone else. And uh, so, you know, my feeling is that we should stay and we should, we should work on these issues. The context here is, of course, that Speaker McCarthy enjoys only a four-vote margin in the House. Your colleagues are threatening, if they don't get their way, to put a, a process in motion to oust him. How much, Congressman, how much of what we're watching in Congress this week is Speaker McCarthy looking out for his own political future? I don't think that's a fair assessment at all. I mean, the Speaker has been working tirelessly uh, to get the members to work as a conference. Uh, he's but one voice. And, you know, unlike Nancy Pelosi, who controlled everything with an iron grip, uh, he has allowed the rank and file members to play a role uh, in crafting legislation and in the process. And so, you know, obviously it's messy at times. This is messier than I think anybody would want, including the speaker. Um, but I, I don't think it's fair to say that he's putting his own uh, interests ahead of, of the conference, not, it, not in the least. Is any of this raising questions in your mind? about your party's ability to govern? No, you're talking about a handful of people who right now are, uh, you know, trying to exert uh, pressure on the conference to get what they view as, uh, you know, what the spending cuts should be and what the numbers should be. Uh, but I think as a conference, uh, we have been able to advance a lot of legislation uh, in the first nine months. We have Although been able just today, uh, to continue. Although just today, you failed to advance the defense spending bill. That was something in the previous shutdown under the Trump administration. Congress at least got that done. Not this time. Well, we're, we still have nine days left. Obviously, we w would like to see that bill debated and moved. Uh, and we'll continue to push for that. But this, this Congress uh, has been serving as a check and balance on the Biden agenda. It's been able to stop a lot of the reckless uh, spending. Obviously, 
the spending levels that this administration would like to continue at are not going to happen. And so that's, you know, a big part of what this debate and discussion is about. Uh, but ultimately, we're going to have to find compromise, both within the conference and certainly uh, working with the Senate and the White House to get to final appropriations bills. That's the objective, and that's what I and most of my colleagues uh, will continue to work towards. A last question, and you can answer it in a word. How likely do you believe a shutdown is after September 30th, scale of 1 to 10? Well, I, I'm not going to put a likelihood on it. I am going to do everything I can to avoid that. Uh, and I think most of my colleagues uh, would like to avoid that. So we're going to keep working over the next nine days to make sure that that doesn't happen. Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. Congressman, thank you. Thanks. Ozempic, the injectable drug for type 2 diabetes, has taken the world by storm. Despite not being approved by the Food and Drug Administration for weight loss, Ozempic has prompted people on TikTok and Instagram to speculate about which stars have used it to shed pounds seemingly overnight. But some people taking the popular drug worry it might have another side effect on mental health. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin reports. Nearly three months into taking Ozempic for diabetes, Jenny Kent had already lost 12 pounds, and her blood sugar numbers were looking better than they had in a while. But something was off. I was just constantly in a state of being overwhelmed. So my response to that was just, I was just crying all the time sobbing, crying. She's one of many people taking Ozempic and related drugs to describe mental health problems. But that possible side effect isn't mentioned in Ozempic's instructions for use or drug label. So are the problems a coincidence or related to the drug? In July, the European Medicines Agency announced that it was looking into the risk of thoughts of self-harm and suicide with the use of Ozempic and similar drugs. The FDA hasn't taken that step. An agency spokesperson told NPR it is monitoring the situation. Adding, we continue to conclude that the benefits of these medications outweigh the risks when they are used according to FDA-approved labeling. Once a drug like Ozempic is on the market, it's difficult to conduct studies that would answer the question. Here's Rishi Desai of Harvard Medical School, who studies drug side effects. It may take some time, even years, to study this uh, and, and see anything with certainty. NPR analyzed the FDA's public database for capturing new side effects. It's called FAIRS. The agency has received 489 reports of patients experiencing anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts while taking semaglutide drugs, which include Ozempic. In 96 of those reports, the patient had suicidal thoughts, and five of them died. Still, it's too early to know whether Ozempic and the other drugs caused the mental health problems because of the nature of the database. Here's Desai from Harvard again. So FAST is a passive surveillance system where ordinary people like you and me, patients, caregivers, medical providers can report a safety event if they feel that their patient has suffered uh, an adverse outcome from a drug that they had been on. The database is voluntary, unverified by the agency, and may have duplicates. It also has no denominator or comparison group to tease out whether an adverse event, like depression or suicidal thoughts, is the result of the drug or something else. Here's Dr. Jonathan Alpert, who chairs the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Montefiore Medical Center. I always think it makes sense to take side effects like that seriously, particularly in drugs that are relatively new and that we're still learning about. People experiencing potential side effects should consult their doctors. A Novo Nordisk spokesperson says the company takes all reports about new side effects very seriously and is monitoring additional data. 
Novo Nordisk remains confident in the benefit-risk profile of the products and remains committed to ensuring patient safety, the spokesperson said in an email, adding that this class of drugs has been used for more than 15 years. As for Jenny Kent, who was a few months into taking Ozempic, her worsening mental health problems really started to affect her life. I was starting to feel like I was just this negative burden for everybody, and I didn't want to do that. Then she got a text from her younger sister, Jackie, after a belated Father's Day gathering in July. It said, are you okay? At first, Kent said she was fine, but after some prodding, she caved. I started talking to her about it. And she is the one who said, the only thing that's changed for you is Ozempic. She's like, are you sure it's not that? And I said, there's no way it could be that. At the end of July, Jenny went back to her doctor, and they decided she should stop taking Ozempic. It's only been a few months, but Jenny thinks her mental health is improving. She wanted to talk publicly about her experience so other people who find themselves in the same boat don't blame themselves as she initially did. NPR caught up with Jenny's sister, Jackie. She's laughing. I had I realized I hadn't heard her like genuinely laugh in a while. She says the difference in her sister when she stopped taking Ozempic was night and day. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us on a Thursday evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, political campaigns spend a lot of money on television ads. will lay out the cost of a political TV spot. That's coming up. Marketplace starts at 6.30. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass TLC's Board Ready Boot Camp. Now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org. Stocks took a tumble today. The Dow fell nearly one and a tenth of a percent. S&P lost one and six tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq fell more than one and eight tenths of a percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, happening October 14th in Copley Square. Join 200 notable authors speaking about everything from how to be happy to how to save democracy. Thrillers, memoirs, satire, myth-making, and a taste of history, too. Don't miss it. Details at bostonbookfest.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash cars. The Red Sox take the night off tonight as they prepare for the final homestand of the regular season. It'll be a three-game series of the White Sox starting tomorrow. Another clear night ahead tonight, but getting chillier, falling to the low 50s, and that starts a cooling trend. Tomorrow's highs should only reach about 69 despite the sunshine tomorrow. Highs in the mid-60s over the weekend as skies turn overcast Saturday and Sunday, the chance of rain on both days. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. And Historic New England, inviting you to spend time with New England storytellers this fall. 
Tour their 38 historic house museums, visit their gardens and landscapes, and enjoy fun and informative programs and events. Learn more at historicnewengland.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he carries around a list of wrongfully detained Americans. That list got a bit shorter this week when five Americans were released from Iran. But Blinken says there is still work to do, and he's trying to come up with ways to deter countries from taking Americans to use as political pawns. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Washington Post journalist Jason Rezaian was freed in a prisoner swap with Iran in 2016, but he says even after he came home, he received death threats because of a propaganda television series about him in Iran. And the Iranian producer of that program is here in New York as part of Iran's delegation to the U.N. General Assembly. Why is that person allowed to walk freely uh, in New York City as a member of a diplomatic delegation? He's not a diplomat. He is uh, an aider and a better of a hostage-taking state. Rezaian says if the U.S. and other countries really want to deter this practice of arbitrary detentions, it should punish those involved. And there should be consequences for people like them. We're speaking at Canada's mission to the United Nations. Canada took a lead in this effort after two of its citizens were held by China to pressure Canada to drop a case against Huawei's chief financial officer. Michael Kodvig, who spent a thousand days in Chinese custody, says countries need to sharpen the tools of deterrence. Currently, the costs of arbitrary detention are asymmetric, low for perpetrators, high for targeted states and astronomical for victims. To invert that equation, we must deny opportunities and punish violations. Canada's foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, says that's exactly what they're trying to do. More than 70 countries have signed on to a joint statement condemning arbitrary detentions. The next step is to show that they can work together rather than one by one to pressure and punish countries that take people as pawns. Secretary Blinken calls the practice callous and inhumane. The U.S. says it's working on 30 to 40 cases now, including two Americans currently held in Russia. Sometimes I look across the table at a counterpart whose country is engaged in this and really ask myself how how they sleep at night. Blinken has faced criticism for the deal with Iran. The U.S. gave clemency to five Iranians and helped Iran get access to $6 billion of its oil revenue that had been frozen in recent years. But Jason Rezaian says getting Americans home does require concessions and negotiations. He'd just like to see a more concerted effort to prevent these situations in the first place. We have a growing body of evidence of a serialized crime that's being perpetrated again and again by mafia states. He means Russia, Iran, China, Venezuela, and North Korea. But Rezaian says some U.S. friends are involved in this too, and he'd like to see them sign on to this statement, reestablishing international norms. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the United Nations. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey today issued an executive order that calls for more strategic conservation of Massachusetts land and waters. 
The goal of the order is to promote biodiversity. It directs the state's Fish and Game Department to set new conservation targets for state agencies to implement by the years 2030, 2040, and 2050. The governor said the move is necessary to protect critically important habitats and help lessen the effects of climate change. Andy Finton is a conservation ecologist with the Nature Conservancy of Massachusetts. He applauds the move, and he walked us through the basics of biodiversity. So biodiversity at its simplest is the variety of life and the abundance of life in any given place. I think the word can be somewhat cold, so I think of it as like a story. So right now we're heading into fall and our forests, whether it's Mount Greylock in western Massachusetts or the North Shore or even the Cape, our trees are about to turn color. And we think of, oh, there's a forest, but we're going to start to see yellow birches and red maples and rusty orange oaks. And that's the first step towards thinking about how diverse is that place. If we walk into that forest, we're going to see a log that fell over a few years ago and is starting to rot with mushrooms on it. And you can keep going deeper and deeper and think about rolling that log over and finding a salamander or a beetle. It's that variety of life in any given place. And where is that not happening? Or where is that environment in danger? So we're, we're losing biodiversity in Massachusetts, across the country, and globally. And these are from threats like climate change, from habitat loss, from habitat fragmentation. All of these things add up and begin to erode the resilience of ecosystems like forests, wetlands, salt marshes. Give us an idea of where it's happening. Okay. The salt marshes on the coast of Massachusetts, they've experienced a number of insults over literally decades and centuries. So the North Shore, the Great Marsh on the North Shore of Massachusetts is is a great example. A huge, highly functioning salt marsh. But we're, we're losing species and we're losing the ability of those systems. Same with on Cape Cod, where we've got a lot of fertilizer on lawns, a lot of septic tanks that don't function well. That nutrient pollution is draining into those salt marshes and eroding their ability to stay biodiverse. So that sounds like it's really not a good thing at all. What's the practical effect? We're critically dependent on the ecosystems around us, the wetlands, the forests, the salt marshes, the ocean. They give us our clean drinking water. They give us the clean air we're breathing, the oxygen, literally the oxygen that we're breathing every moment. They're mitigating climate change by pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And once these ecosystems begin to degrade, they are no longer able to do that for us. So coastal salt marshes are a great example because when we're experiencing a hurricane, like we've just seen one glance off the coast, we get higher sea levels, we get a storm surge, and those salt marshes absorb that energy, absorb those coastal uh, storm surges. So without the salt marshes? Without the salt marshes, we get direct impacts from storm surge on our roads, our homes, our health and safety. With Governor Maura Healy's announcement, I mean, you you are extremely happy about it. She said, and this is pretty scary, she said more than 400 species in Massachusetts are endangered. If the state has spent, as the governor also says, decades protecting natural resources, why are we at a crisis point right now? And how bad is it that 400 species are endangered? It sounds bad, but it's we've had a lot of success. We are a leader in conservation in Massachusetts. But we're at a crisis point. We're at a crisis point. I think if we hadn't put the efforts we put in for the last several decades, we'd be at a much worse situation. We're at a crisis point globally. About a million species are considered at risk for extinction across the globe. 
we've lost three billion birds in North America in the last 50 years. Three billion. Three billion with a B. That's 30% of the biomass, the number of birds across North America. So yes, we're seeing gloom and doom, but the exciting thing is we've brought a lot of species back from the edge. We know how to do it, and we're continuing to do it. So what are the top instruments the executive order uses to accomplish more biodiversity protection? The executive order is going to focus the energies and actions of all state agencies. This is a first in the country, first ever directive to coalesce around a single goal of biodiversity by all agencies. So every action will lead to a net positive for our plants and animals, the ecosystems that we depend on. The pieces of the toolkit that will be implemented by these agencies include land protection. We'll also focus on restoration and management of sensitive habitats. Andy Fenton, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Andy Fenton is a conservation ecologist with the Nature Conservancy in Massachusetts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard with Azad, a fusion of Middle Eastern stories, modern cinema, and shadow puppets. Tonight at 6, artlab.harvard.edu. This is 90.9 WBUR. Beautiful night for a ball game. Too bad the Sox aren't playing. They will be tomorrow night as they start up the final homestand of the season against the Chicago White Sox. Pretty beautiful today. Look for a clear night tonight. Getting chillier, though, falling to the low 50s tonight. Tomorrow's high should only reach about 69 degrees despite the sunshine. Highs in the mid-60s over the weekend as skies turn overcast for both Saturday and Sunday. The chance of rain both days. It's 6.30.